0: I'm gonna read to you from the the very long new novel, and if I read really fast, we'll be out of here by Saturday. Um, uh, I'm gonna read two little sections. I was trying to figure out, I didn't want to read anything. Um, A lot of this book deals with uh, human rights in the Congo. It's set from about 18, the late 1880s to 1919. It goes through um, King Leopold's occupation of the Belgian Congo. Uh, through the First World War and the Easter Uprising. Um, there's a lot of history in here. Uh, I, I tried to do it as a comedy somehow. <laughs> um, but I'm going to read two short sections. There are three. It's The novel the, uh, novel's written in the present tense and it's in the perspective of three different characters. And then two uh, valiant gentlemen of the title are uh, Roger Casement, who was an Irish revolutionary and a human rights um, Kind of warrior, uh, he called attention to the atrocities in the Belgian Congo, and actually was um, essential in, in having the English remove their support from that regime of slavery. Um, and then he ended up uh, gun running, being in Germany trying to uh, trying to raise support with the Germans to get the English out of Ireland. So a lot of this book deals with anti-colonial stuff. Um, so he is friends with this guy, Herbert Ward. And the the conceit of the book is really that Roger Casement was gay, and he's actually in love with this friend of his. That's what this book uh, takes as its kind of core truth. Um, And Herbert Ward is married to this um, Argentinian-American heiress named Sarita. These are all historical figures. Uh, A lot is known about Roger Casement. Not much is known about the other two. So I'm going to read a little bit from Sarita's point of view, and then I'm going to leap ahead and read something from Casement's point of view. So this is the first time we encounter Sarita in the novel. She's on a boat. Um, Her future husband, Herbert Ward, is also on this boat. They're headed to the US. Herbert Ward's going to do a lecture circuit. Um, And since we're just encountering her for the first time, I don't think I really need to set her up too much. Uh, The boat's called the Sol. The Sol, October 1889. Sarita sights across the rail a straight view of uninterrupted North Atlantic, the same one she's been staring at for the last four days since the boat left Plymouth. Sarita had been looking forward to the journey as she had much to think over, but now she's thought and rethought. She's looking forward to New York and its distractions. She knows nothing of men. When Sarita was still a schoolgirl in Argentina, a trip was arranged to visit the countryside. One of the wealthier girls owned a hacienda, and she and the others were to spend the week picnicking, hiking, swimming, and eating good, wholesome food. The girls were crammed into the back of the carriage, and Madame Villawan forced to sit beside the driver, allowing the girls to descend into their tame gossip and Cosmer fantasies. Madame was wearing an enormous hat that she kept in place with her left hand, while with her right she clung to the rail of the bench, small, desperate acts of control. The carriage dipped and swayed along the rutted road, and the girls chatted and sang, waved off flies, and tolerated the heat and profound humidity that resulted from three days of heavy rain. At a bend in the road, the carriage drew close to several vaqueros that work with cows. Here the road narrowed, and as the driver attempted to steer the carriage to the verge, clear of the deep mud, the wheels began to slip and the carriage became stuck. At this moment, Serena noticed that one cow, in truth a bull, was mounted on top of the other, wiggling, and the activity in question was the breeding of the two animals. This realization was made by all the girls concurrently, and met in turn with confusion, horror, glee, and meditative calm. Sarita, who had the unfortunate luck to be seated closest to the spectacle, now saw that the young vaquero who held the rope about the bull's neck was smiling at her, holding her pale eyes directly in his dark gaze. And although she knew she ought to do otherwise, she could not look away. This is how it was. The vaqueros at their husbandry, the bull at his, until Sarita woke to Madame Villawan, ankle-deep in mud, yelling at the girls to please avert their eyes. For weeks after, every time her mind calmed or she was falling off to sleep, Sarita would recall that bull, its shifting as it met its mark, and the cow that might have been distressed, but wasn't. And the vaqueros' smile that had spanned mere seconds in real time but was spinning into hours in its recollection. She cannot marry Charles Brock Innes. Her mother is already on her case. If Sarita didn't like Charles Brock Innes, then what was he doing at dinner? He has been a regular at Carlton Terrace, and Sarita's mother, as she struggles to keep on top of what is socially acceptable, has made these invitations, expanded menus, ordered outfits, and vacated drawing rooms in order to let the match take. And Sarita has been happily occupying benches, taking elbows, sitting knee to knee with Mr. Brock Ennis, alert complicit, and hopeful, as a whole family struggles to clean up the American, and even South American, money with this marriage. Her father is relying on her to steer them into the English peerage. Sarita understands what's needed, but has no help. Her mother, This Sally from New Jersey still wears a trauma of poverty, recalls too clearly her husband's first dollars made peddling boxes of unguents and pills in Buenos Aires, remembers burying a child in New Orleans in a plain pine box. Sarita has no illusions about a life of poverty. She remembers going to the markets in Buenos Aires with her mother to bargain for chickens and vegetables and bread. Mother could do anything in those years, but her Spanish was rough. And Sarita, despite the flat gray eyes and pale skin, made a convincing Argentinian once given a chance to speak. She wasn't bargaining for fun or pride or whatever makes the wealthy squeeze money from working people. She was bargaining because she was poor. Whatever cash could be had was being held by father, who seemed to think if his family could just put off buying that new pair of boots, moving to better rooms, hiring a woman to help with the washing, eating, that he could take those simple coins and turn them into something real. Sarita remembers being cold. She remembers being unbearably hot. She remembers being hungry and the particular humiliation of being white, in a country where that meant wealth and having no money. If this life of Carlton Terrace and Fifth Avenue is a gilded cage, try the prison of poverty. Sarita's mother retreats behind curtains into shadows up the stairs with her false headaches and real pills, and Sarita would like to say that it is done, over, successful, that it is marriage. She liked Charles Brock Innes. He made her laugh. Brock Innes did impersonations, including one of her father, his probing eyes, his habit of stretching his fingers like a cat extending claws, the way he sank into a chair, silently observing until those attempting to speak to him dissolved into nervous chatter. But now everything Brock Innes said is in a new light. She remembers his words. Sarita, a woman should pursue her own goals, even in marriage. He must have thought her desperate, but it didn't seem that way. The grinding of the ship's engine draws her closer to New York, farther from London, although they sailed from Plymouth, as if she is a dog on a leash, allowed to wander to a better location, only to be pulled back at another's will. Sarita shuts her eyes against the sun, and the exchange plays through her head. There's the linen closet. There's Brock Innes, exiting, and rushing down the hall. There's Valentine, her father's valet, close behind, tucking in his shirt. And there's Sarita, standing farther up the hallway, with Valentine processing her presence, having lost none of his composure. His usual reserved look read as challenging, and she'd said, utterly ridiculous, Who is dressing Mr. Sanford? Valentine had mumbled something about her father needing to compose a telegram before dinner, and therefore having been done with his wardrobe early. And after that, she had again taken Brock elbow into the dining room, had managed through the salmon and jellies and roasts and asparagus and puddings and cheeses, the different wines, the winking cutlery spreading out across the cloth like surgical tools, she had carved at all of it, fish, pheasant, fool. Never wittier, she had found humor in everything. And there was Brock Innes, laughing at all her jokes. He enjoyed her company. He liked her spark. He wanted her to be the mother of his children, the Bull Wiggles. This is not the time to stir things up. She doesn't know what deals her father has going down with Bering's Bank, but she knows it's risky. Father is on edge, and his usual prickly demeanor has shifted to a disturbing calm, the calm indicative of a looming eruption. But there's no point in saying what happened. She has no interest in exposing Brock Innes. She wonders if he thought she too had strange inclinations. She could be more fragile, which men seem to like. But she's always thought that her handsomeness and warm intelligence made up for that. No, she's not going to blame herself. She'll leave that to the others. And then a shadow. Senorita, says Paz. Paz is Sarita's maid. Que necesitas. Paz holds the parasol, which she opens and extends in her direction. Of course, Paz is right. At her age, 29, Sarita shouldn't be presenting her face to the sun. She also knows that pretty Paz enjoys making these reminders, easing waistlines, yanking the occasional gray hair from Sarita's head. The day is cold and the passengers are arranged about the deck, taking in the air, stirring about the exits, gliding as if on tracks. Sarita moves to the railing, her skirt trailing, and she trails a yet longer shadow. Her heels click as she steps, as she shudders to each new second. Marking her progress. All right, and then I'm going to leap ahead. And we have something from uh, 20 years later, I think it might be 25 years later. Um, and this is uh, after, I don't know, are there any um, Irish Revolution buffs? <laughs> okay, so Roger Casement. well, sometimes, all right, like, I'm go, all right, and then I'm like, great. Okay, but, um, yeah, please please help me out. But, uh, so, Roger Casement, he starts off, you know, working with this guy, Herbert Warden, the the Belgian Congo, and I'm not giving anything away in the book, but he ends up being sent to Germany to try to get, as I said, the Germans to support the Irish, and they, you know, the Easter Rising happens right smack in the middle of the First World War, and it's a really depending on how you think about it. Poorly timed or well-timed events because, you know, America isn't in the war at that point. There are so many Americans who are of Irish descent and it could go either way, you know, and this is what the Irish are counting on. But Casement has kind of lost his faith in the Germans at this point and they have a boatload of arms that are off the coast of Ireland. This is, you know, off the coast of Bannisterand, and they're trying to land them so that the um, so that the people who are rising up for the Easter uprising will be armed. But what happens is that uh, the German boat is found and it's scuttled, so they sink it with all the arms, which is part of the reason they had no weapons um, during the Easter uprising, was because Casement wasn't able to do it. But they didn't send him back on the boat, they sent him back on a submarine. And he's with this guy, Monteith, who's an Irish guy who's been living in the US um, and who was supposed to be training the Irish forces in Germany. Um, And this is just a bit from the U-boat, which is, Kind of self-contained, which is why I'm going to read it. Um, Strand, April, 1916. So this is two days before the Easter uprising. It is a burial at sea. However, Casement has always thought burial would offer peace, and this is an odd coffin packed with activity and actors. He would turn to face the wall, but the bunk does not accommodate this. His head is shoved up against a circuit box. The heels of his shoes rest against a steel plate covering a nest of wires. His knees project into the space before him and are routinely struck by the sailors passing through the cabin. Although it's not a cabin, really. Just a few yards marked off and two bunks, this one, longer than the other and at times occupied by the quartermaster and that across from him. Monteith is sitting there and would be looking into space, but there is no space, so he's focused on a patch of wall just above Casement's head. The walls are slick with condensation and drops of water spatter onto his face with fair frequency. The air is thick and unwholesome, heavy with heat. Monteith takes a vial from his pocket and shakes it. You can hear the tablets rattle. He laughs and then composes his face into grim resignation. He and Monteith have pills and a tube of curare, poison, with the express instructions to use it in the event they're captured. Although right now, survival seems of more importance than orchestrating death. You're awake, says Monteith, nodding at Casement. I'm afraid I haven't been much company. Uh, There's been plenty of that. The sound of a man vomiting can be heard from beyond the curtain. Casement 2 would be vomiting, but he's done with that, emptied himself completely an hour or two ago. The scent lingers with that of urine and a reeking medley of sweat-soaked wool. So I asked the captain how he could manage to be in this tin can for so long with all the smells and closeness, and I'm expecting some sort of condescending German speech about superior races and all that. So I say, Captain Wiesbach, how do you do it? And do you know what he says to me? No, says Casement, opium. They're all on opium. Monteith shakes his head, looks at the vial again. That's not opium, Bob. Ah, don't worry about me. I'm not one for that sort of thing, and we know fuck all anyway. I'm not sure what secrets are worried about us giving up. Monteith may not be inclined to take his own life, But it's a suicide mission they're on, poison or not. At least they've managed to keep the Irish brigade out of this, because to send them to Ireland now would be surely the equivalent of lining up all those men against the wall to be shot. Instead, they are accompanied by Beverly, or whoever he is, because that's not his real name, who has been sent over from Ireland and is now speeding back to no good purpose. Casement's not sure when he signed his own death warrant. The music of rattling pills accompanies this knowledge, but even if he dodges that, he's destined for the noose. He knows it. The night before, he had brought his personal papers to Countess Blucher and had broken down into a fit of weeping. He's just out of the hospital, so it was predictable, although perhaps somewhat of a surprise to her ladyship. The Countess can't really be trusted, but there is no one else, and the fact that she knows Ward, or has at least met him, provide a connection to some kinder time. It is its own particular torture to not be able to comfort Ward for the death of his son, not to be able to grieve this child in a public way. He carries the loss of Charlie in silence. He harbors hope that there's been some mistake made in the telegraph, which is where he'd read the news looking for it as he lay in his hospital bed, finding it, and then trying not to believe. He tries to articulate the stuff of Sarita's grief, of Ward's grief, and of his own. He keeps from thinking over what he knows must be the case, that his friendship with Ward has bled out on the fields of Flanders, along with all things good and youthful and true. He has held his grief in silence, Buried it under papers and planning, shot up ideals and doctors' reports. He has struggled into meetings, and as he shouted, his voice cracked. He knew that he was speaking as a man on the edge of destruction, clinging to a dream to stop from slipping over. Negotiations on what was finally going to be shipped to Ireland and how had been fraught. And what was the point of fighting when it was clear the Germans wouldn't budge? What was the point in arguing over mode of transportation, number of weapons, quality, ammunition? The vast majority of the 100,000 men that Devoy wished to arm would go without rifles. That was clear. Everything else is mired in a fog of poor planning. In Ireland, people are waiting for the arms, prepared to rise up on Easter Monday. There is to be a rendezvous with a ship in Charlie Bay but they only have 20,000 rifles, and these are of a vintage that does not inspire confidence. Devoy had said something about rifles like this being good enough for Napoleon, but that was when the enemy wasn't wielding something far better. Such statements are easily made from one's armchair in New York. The ship, the ALD, has a four-day window to meet with the escort off of Banistrand. The U-boat will be reaching the coast of Ireland in the next couple of hours, and then, Casement hopes he can contact the leaders of the uprising, although who these men are, other than Plunkett, is not known to him, and convince them that they are better off waiting for naval support from Germany. Although, as he articulates the thought, he knows it represents a false hope. There is to be no German naval support. This is it for now. In waiting, which is what he'd wanted before he fully understood, we will just take the current situation and transport it neatly into the summer. The volunteers, too, are angling for a conflict. Whatever distractions the Germans are giving, the English works well for their cause. But even should the arms land and the men occupy St. Stephen's Green and what else, Four Courts, Dublin Castle, how long can they possibly hold before England crushes them? The civilian casualties will be high because occupying places like St. Stephen's Green means ridding it of dog walkers and students and shop girls with sandwiches and nodding drunks, not English soldiers. He did have a glimmer of what was at stake when Plunkett was still around. Plunkett had his little document for the Irish Brigade and that was effective. And Pierce's address at the burial of a Donovan Rossa, Casement had the souvenir booklet mailed by Nina, was a brilliant piece of writing. There by the old Fenian's graveside the identity of Ireland had suddenly made sense. You could see it emerging from the primordial gel and stand fully formed in your mind. One would have to be insensible not to join this God-ordained war against oppression. Apparently, what Ireland needed was some pretty words on a bit of paper and a body for gravity, and suddenly she was an intelligible nation. Suddenly, your blood was heated and you pick up a gun and head for the streets, feeling that anything less was cowardice and worse, a negation of self. Casement has a curdling feeling in his gut right now that one of these language teachers or poets or editors or painters or whomever else seems to be fueling the passion of this doomed uprising is coming up with some bit of paper. And given time, we'll find the bodies to sign it in blood. You've gone all quiet again, says Monteith. Did you think you'd lost me? I did just check you out of the hospital. Casement nods. I'm thinking of the Pierce speech, the last line has anchored itself in his memory. Enough to know that the valiant soldier of Ireland is dead, that the unconquered spirit is free. Ah yes, the noble dead, Monteith groans. We all know that the Irish are willing to die for Ireland, but what's needed is some men who can manage to stay alive long enough to shoot a few of the English. They are silent for some time. Monteith takes the pills out a few times and puts them back. He has a wife and daughters in America. He must be thinking about them because there's something regretful in his features, almost sentimental. Are you a lucky man, Roddy? Asked Monteith. It is a good question. Looking back on the matter of his life, it would seem that he has dodged a few disasters, although found himself mired in others. He has had friends and experience and fame but also loneliness and despair. Here, on this U-boat barreling towards the coast of Ireland, wasted and weak after those long, frustrating months in Germany, it's hard to feel lucky. Adler is lost to him, lost to everyone, vanished and leaving no trail. Who knows what will happen? There it is again, happen, as if the very presence of that word implies the existence of a creator, a happener someone who may or may not be feeling kindly towards Casement. And if there is a god, and he is the familiar one, he is not known for treating his loved ones gently. Lucky, says Casement. Ask me that tomorrow. Casement is not really asleep, but not exactly conscious when he is roughly roused. It is close to two o'clock in the morning. What are we doing, Asked Casement. Wiesbach wants us out of here. He's getting worried about running into a patrol. Casement swings his legs around and sits up. Beverly sticks his head around the curtain. Got everything? What is there to get? Casement pats himself down in a perfunctory manner. He has a German code, although he's sure it isn't an important one. He has his poison, the pills, the tube of curare. He has a gun that he doesn't know how to operate. Let's go, says Monteith. The U-boat has surfaced to a surging sea. A rowboat bucks in the waves. One of the nameless sailors holds the rope. The water roars and breaks around the submarine, sucking at the sides. Casement holds fast to the railing, feeling hollowed and weak. He will not be able to row, that he is sure of, and is even wondering if he will make it to shore in consciousness. The moon, skirted in cloud, watches on coldly. Monteith is the first to reach the boat, stumbling in like a drunk. He recovers quickly, gestures for people to hurry. You next, says Beverly to Casement. He's to be handed in like a child. Hold the railing. Holding the railing, Casement takes cautious steps. The observation deck is slippery and narrow. The Germans watch, eager to finally be rid of him, as eager as he is to be back on Irish soil. He swings his leg over the edge, sees Monteith's burly hand extended, and he grabs for it, managing two quick steps before a sudden surge up tilts the boat and knocks him from his feet. He folds himself into the bow of the boat. There's a blanket for you, says Monteith. Beverly is next, hopping in from the side. They start rowing for Tralee bay, guided by the reach and dip of the little fennet light. The U-boat stays afloat just long enough to get its men back into its belly, and then it sinks beneath, as if Caseman's imagination is what had called it to the surface. Caseman takes a blanket and pulls it around his shoulders. The boat rocks up and falls away. He'll have to hold fast not to fall out. Monteith is a skillful rower and throws himself into the troughs angling across the waves. A wave breaks over the bow, soaking casement, bringing him into a more articulate consciousness. There's a lot of water accumulating in the boat, and a shouting match, or desperate conversation, has sprung up between Beverly and Monteith. The great shattering of waves upon the strand means they are drawing close. Monteith is dealing with the shore break, trying to keep the boat at the correct angle. But his hand is wrapped. When did he injure it? And he's weak with the left oar. They swing around, no longer across the waves, and there's one last roll that takes the boat and holds it and flips it over. Into the drink he goes. There is Casement sinking beneath the water. He reaches the ocean floor, its shifting surface of powdered stone. And here's the clash and clash of rocks raked along the margin as the waves beat and mold the shore of Ireland. And here he'll die, a fitting end a drowning on the eve of the feudal uprising and his lungs are filling with water and it is a rough falling off, not as gentle as sleep, but a persuasive, brutal love. And then there's a tug at his neck and he's pulled from the water, dragged with his face just in the air and the sea still smacking his cheeks. I've got him, says a voice, Montice. Is he alive? Don't know, Jesus fucking Christ. He is rolled on his back on the rocky beach, and Monteith begins to chaff his arms and legs. Roddy, are you there? Casement begins to cough in streams of water. His nose is running. He is more liquid than solid. Well done, well done. We have to get going, says Beverly. I'm sure they've seen us. Three men, says Monteith. Smallest invasion on record. We have to move, says Beverly. What do you you suggest we do with Sir Roger? We'll hide him somewhere and get a car and come back for him. Monteith's pause seems to suggest that he's not in favor of the idea, but can't think of a better one. Then Beverly is on his left side and Monteith is on the right, and they're dragging him along and the toes of his shoes are scuffing up the beach. He's seen legless drunks carried like this and men after being beaten senseless. He's not sure which of these groups he belongs to, and also not sure he justifies the creation of a third. I think it's a ring for it, says Beverly, in response to something. It will keep him out of sight. He's lying in the long grass. At a distance, he can see an outline of a beer bottles, maybe some empty cigarette packets. This must be a place where young people come for fun, out of sight of their elders. And this is where they will leave him, sheltered from the wind, cushioned by grass. Roddy, don't go anywhere. He's not going anywhere, says Beverly. We'll be back as soon as we can. Don't make any noise. He's not going to make any noise, says Beverly. Shut your God, Beverly. What is wrong with you? It's Roger Casement, for fuck's sake. And that's the last he hears before he drops into sleep. He has made it home. He has made it to Ireland, and if he never wakes, he will be all right, for his head is cradled gently in the grass, stirred by the night air is caressing his cheek, and there is the harsh whispering of waves on the strand, and the raking of rock against rock at the brink of a cold sea, and the rattle of some night bird's wings. He is all right. He is better than that. He is home.